So Money episode 149, Laura Vanderkam. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. So what's your take on uh, the famous expression, having it all? I personally can't stand it. Um, but, you know, when feminists launched the having it all movement, I think it was, you know, decades ago, probably sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, I think the goal was to really help women achieve individual freedom and fulfillment. But also revolutionized the world. And over the generations, I think this expression has evolved to mean different things to different women. And for me at this point, it's evolved into this impossible thing. Like having it all, I I appreciate the sentiment, but I think that it does unleash some unnecessary pressure on women and families to really um, go above and beyond in ways that can really stretch their, their bandwidth. And really compromise their happiness in some ways because you're trying to achieve this ideal that um, really is ideal and it's not really meant – it's perfection in some ways. And so striving for for perfection is, is not always a healthy thing. Um, so needless to say, I think this expression has found itself at the center of much debate. But I think that no matter what you think of the expression, as modern women and I also think as modern men – we probably can all agree that we wish we had more time, right, to accomplish all of the things that we want to accomplish from work to family to personal matters. I mean, 24 hours just doesn't seem to be enough time to get it all done. Forget having it all. How about just doing what we want to do within the time frame that we have? So with that, I invited today's guest on the show. Her name is Laura Vanderkam, and she has some time tackling solutions for us. She's the author of the brand new book, I Know How She Does It, How Successful Women Build Lives That Work. It actually comes out today. Today is the launch. It is based on a time diary study of 1,001 days in the lives of professional women and their families. And the book takes a practical approach to the question of how people combine work and family while enjoying their own sweet time as well. I mean, because let's be honest, having time to exercise and sleep and spend time with friends and your partner, all very important. And I think sometimes get, uh, you know, put on the very bottom of our to-do list. Laura is a renowned expert in this field. She's also the author of What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast. Great title. For me, that's sleeping. Um, She's also written 168 hours. You have more time than you think. And all the money in the world, what the happiest people know about wealth. Um, A little selfish plug, if you're in New York this week, Laura and I will actually be joining forces this Thursday at the Henry Bendel store in Manhattan for an event called Secrets to Her Success. And I'll be covering all things money. She'll be covering all things time management. We'll be at the Henry Bendel store. Tickets are still available, though going quickly. They are $40, but with that, you get a $40 Henry Bendel gift card. You get both of our books, and you also get some other freebies. There's champagne, there's chocolates, there's mingling, networking. So 
you know, if you're in New York and you want to make the most of your Thursday night, I think this will be a great event. And please let me know if you're going to come so I'll keep an eye out for you. You can check out all the details of the event as well as where to get tickets at farnoosh.tv, which is my homepage. Now, we've got a lot to cover in this next half hour with Laura, and some of the highlights that I think you'll find most interesting is how women manage to work relatively long hours and still spend a lot of time with their families. Laura's an example. She has four kids. She's a full-time author and journalist, so she uh, has her own insights, but also she's pulled from all these women that she's interviewed in her book. How do successful busy women manage their money wisely? Some tidbits on that. And how Laura has overcome being cheap herself, as she describes it. Here is Laura Vanderkam. Laura Vanderkam, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your brand new book, I Know How She Does It. Love the title. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, you and I have been uh, colleagues, friends for some time now. I've always been an admirer of your work. You do an excellent job of uh, dissecting how people make it work, um, how we manage our times, how we can manage our times more efficiently. Your, your last book was called What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast um, and 168 Hours Before uh, as well. Yes. Good so, job. Got all my books. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're an expert when it comes to at least how others manage their time well. And your latest book focuses on women, specifically professional women earning $100,000 or more per year. You uh, got them to give you uh, their their hourly logs, basically telling you what they do when they wake up all the way to what they do before they go to bed. A thousand and one days um, in the lives of women who make at least $100,000 a year the book is entitled, as I mentioned, I Know How She Does It. So this expression of doing it all, um, having it all, what do you make of it? Well, it has a lot of baggage associated right? with it, um, which is one reason I didn't call the book Having It All. But I thought, well, when we strip away some of the baggage and some of the emotional freight with that phrase and simply look at the lives of people who, by at least one definition, do have it all, they clearly have uh, successful careers and in this case also had families too, uh, what did their lives really look like? I mean, people who do have it all how do they make it all work? And I think there's a lot we can all learn from their schedules and what works and what doesn't. I have found that uh, women who work for themselves, while it's perhaps more work and more hours, they're happier. They're better to manage their lives. They're able to manage their lives better. Is that what you found as well? I think that it comes down to control of one's time. And so if you do work for yourself, then you probably have that to some degree, um, which definitely makes life easier when there are a lot of moving parts. On the other hand, I was pretty happy to see just how much flexibility and control of their time many women in more conventional jobs have. Um, I think it's one of these things that we assume people in highly paid jobs kind of have to sign their souls over to their employers. Uh, And I found that was not actually true from a lot of logs. People had quite a bit of flexibility in choosing how they wanted to set up their working lives. Did you also find that women in particular were more, the ones who were vocal about their uh, about their commitments at home, at work, were the ones who 
earned that flexibility, got more control of their time? Or or is it still this issue that you don't want to bring up at work that, you know, you've got kids and you have all these responsibilities tugging at you at home, um, that if talking about that somehow makes you a target? I think over the long term, it's pretty hard to hide the fact that you have a home life. <laughs> uh, you know, it's going to come up one way or the other. Um, probably... It was about three quarters of the women in my study had something personal during work hours. And it wasn't always kid related. It was it was other things, too. But it's kind of hard to completely separate the two. Um, so on some level, being authentic about who you are uh, is going to win friends and influence people in a way that not being authentic or at least trying to hide that component of your life uh, will do. Um, that said, I mean, this is a case-by-case basis. People have to judge for themselves if it's the kind of thing that you want to bring up with your colleagues or not. Um, in some cases, some offices, it's not really what people talk about, and then you need to pay by those rules. But in others, you know, you get to know each other as a family, and so, of course, you get to know your personal lives as well. You discovered a lot of uh, patterns in your research. What was the most surprising pattern that helped women achieve the most, helped them really maximize their time? Well, one thing I found was fascinating is how women manage to work relatively long hours and yet still spend a lot of time with their families. Uh, so this is, of course, one concern people have that if I work more than 40 hours a week, where does the rest of my life fit in? Um, and certainly the women in my study did work longer hours than the average woman. Um, the average woman with a full-time job, if you look at time diary data, works about you know 35, maybe a little bit more hours per week. Uh, the women in my study averaged more like 44 hours a week. So that's longer. It's, it's more than an hour a day longer. Um, of course, it's not 80 hours a week either. So that's important to keep in mind. But in order to fit these longer hours in with their lives, one thing many did was work at night after the kids go to bed. So that was a pretty common strategy that people would leave work at a fairly reasonable time, spend the evenings with their family, and then catch up on stuff at night after the kids go to bed. And another way people did that is by doing a little bit of work on weekends. So they would end uh, at a relatively reasonable hour during the work week and then do a few hours on the weekend when there was some downtime with the family uh, in order to keep those hours high while still spending plenty of time on their personal lives as well. So they they come home and uh, while they make time a break for their families, they're they're right back at it after supper or after the kids take a bath. That is often the way it would work, and people didn't do that every night. So I don't want to make it um, sound like there's some sort of you know nonstop grind here. I mean, what people would often do is they do that maybe two nights a week, or if they did it every night, it would be more like half an hour and then do other more relaxing things after that. Um, It was very few people who did, say, every night for two hours after the kids go to bed. Only a few people did that, and those who did usually had a reason, like they were managing a team in Asia, and so they had to be on the phone at 10 p.m. with them. Um, But then those people were pretty good about taking comp time during the day to make up for that. Any discoveries about how these women manage their money? Were they logging that they were, uh, you know, paying bills or having meetings with their financial advisors? I'm just curious, like, do they squeeze in money matters in their day on a regular or consistent basis? You know, I included that as one of the household chores um, that people did, but I didn't uh, come up with a separate number for something like that. What was interesting to me was 
uh, the split and how people used their money. Um, you know, so everyone in the study was obviously affluent if they're earning over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Many were also married to relatively high earning people as well. And some people use that to make their lives easier, figuring that, you know, we're earning money and money is a tool to build a life that's sustainable for us. And others were not quite as into doing that. And I found that interesting that people didn't necessarily take advantage of their affluence um, to change the way their lives were structured. And that was um, got at one of the questions I often received about this book, this project. You know, I'd say, well, I'm studying high earning women with kids and how they make it all happen in their lives. And people say, well, wouldn't it be easy to, you know, have it all if you earn a lot of money because you can outsource all the things you don't want to do? And I'd say, well, you'd think. And yet a lot of people didn't. <laughs> and so I found that fascinating, uh, that split in, in people who were actively using money as a tool to make life easier mm. and people who weren't. It kind of reminds me of some of the data that I came across when I was doing my book about breadwinning women and, and top earning women. And what's fascinating to me is that when she makes more, she actually does more housework than a woman who um, makes less. And, you know, there's a lot of ways you can look at it, but some of the researchers believe that that is in some ways a way to kind of, um, I guess, uh, I don't know what you say, like make up for the fact that she is the breadwinner and so she wants to overcompensate in the housewifery department because making more is sort of a man's thing. And if she's she feels like that is somewhat threatening to the relationship, then she's like, well, I'm going to cook more and I'm going to do more domestic things and I'm going to be, you know, the best wife possible. It's totally psychological. Um, and, and sometimes it's very subconscious, unconscious. Um, but I find that interesting. And I find it interesting too. And I'm sure there was some of that involved in this. And then there were other families where, um, you know, she earned more. So many of the women, some of the women at least, had husbands who were home with their kids or, or you know, working far fewer hours. Um, and in those cases, you know, those women weren't necessarily doing a whole lot of housework because that was negotiated as part of um, the the man's job in that case. But one thing with that is that men often don't value uh, housework in the same way. Um, that having a spotless house is not necessarily as high a priority. So you can't entirely discount that too, which is that, you know, perhaps in some families, um, the man is working less, he might be working fewer hours, he might be spending more time taking care of the children, but he doesn't see having a spotless house as something that needs to be a top family priority. So if the woman earns more and yet still values that, um, she's going to have to wind up doing that because he's never going to think of it as being something that, you know, it needs to be out of a page in a magazine. Right, right. Yeah. So so that may be part of it, too. We could talk about this for a long time. We're talking to Laura Vanderkam. She's the author of I Know How She Does It, which just came out today. Pick up a copy. Laura, I'm curious to now transition to learn more about you, your mindset when it comes to money, your money failures, successes, behaviors, starting with a philosophy, though. What is perhaps your greatest financial philosophy uh, and, and why is it important to you? How does it necessarily help you make better decisions about money? So I am a naturally cheap person, <laughs> and so I have had to... Um, 
overcome some mindsets associated with that. And I am really trying to teach myself that money is a tool. And so if I have a problem and I'm feeling stressed about it, and if I have the resources to deal with it, then I try to think about how I could come up with a solution uh, that money would enable. Uh, and, and so that's not necessarily the way I would naturally think of things, uh, but it's something that I would like to continue to remind myself of. You started out by saying that you are a kind of innately cheap person. What, how do you define cheap? So we have a family story that when I was little, uh, you know, we were talking about what cheap and expensive meant. And, you know, ex- my mom had asked me, well, what is expensive? Or, or it may not have been my mom, but some, some relative asked me, what's expensive? And I said, costs a lot of money. They said, what does cheap mean? We can buy it. So <laughs> I think that that is kind of the mindset I had, uh, that, that cheap means I can afford it. Uh, but I am evolving in my definition of this. I, I have um, more money now than I ever thought I would have, which is a wonderful place to be in in life. Um, it has also been interesting to find out that I don't actually want a lot of stuff that money can enable you to have. There's a lot of cheap stuff that you just don't need in your life. And, and that's uh, been interesting to, to discover that uh, just because you can buy something doesn't mean you necessarily want to buy something uh, and that your criteria needs to be different at that point. Well, you brought up your childhood. I'd love to explore that a little further and maybe have you share with us a vivid money memory uh, that has in some way shaped your your views on money today. So I still don't like to go shopping uh, recreationally. It just sort of seems to me is not something I want to do. Um, I for a long time, uh, was, was into looking at coupons and things like that. And then I realized, you know, I'm buying stuff I don't necessarily want just because it's on sale. And that's not a good money mindset to have. Um, you should buy things that you need or want in your life. And hopefully the exact number on the price tag is less relevant than whether it's worth a certain amount to you in your life. Um, so I, you know, I remember, uh, it's funny. I still write my grocery list on the back of junk mail because <laughs> I remember my mom using envelopes from junk mail to, she would open the envelope, uh, she'd put her coupons in it and she'd have her grocery list on the back. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the natural way one carries around a grocery list, um, is, is on the back of an envelope that your coupons would go in. Uh, so, so that's funny that I still have that. I always reach for, for junk mail to write my, my grocery list on. And do you use coupons? Not anymore. Um, and I, I'm even trying to be better about store sales that it's, if it's something that I was going to buy anyway, and it's on a store sale that I can be happy about that. That's great. Um, if it's, uh, just because it's on sale though, doesn't mean I should get it. And so the other day I, um, did not buy five packages of 
this oatmeal that I thought my kids might like um, because they were having a, a five for nine dollars sale or whatever, something along those lines. I was like, well, you know, I'll get one, but I don't know that I really want more than one right now. I'm not sure they'll keep liking it. You know how little kids are. They can like oh, yeah. one week and then not like it the next. So uh, I don't really want five boxes of this stuff in my pantry. So don't be you know, swayed by, by this deal that's going on. If you weren't planning on stocking up on it in, anyway, then, then don't stock up now. Right. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean you should. What about failure? I, I think that when you fail the right way, you fail to, to learn about how to succeed and, and then eventually it, it plants the seed for success down the road. What's a financial failure that you experienced uh, where you learned an immense amount about not just money, but about yourself? I think that I have been slow to invest in growing my business in the way that I should. And, you know, part of writing books is building a platform. And part of having a platform is doing a lot of outreach, you know, having a better looking website, having more um, sort of ways of engaging readers in that. And I hadn't really invested in that sort of stuff before my uh, first time management book, 168 Hours, came out. And I've been fortunate that over time, people have talked about it with their friends and recommended it. And so it kept selling and, um, you know, eventually earned out its advance. And I still hear from people about it. And that's awesome. But it did not have a fast start out of the gate. Um, and, and so in that sense, I really got lucky that it's still around for people to buy, um, because many books that don't get a fast start out of the gate don't get that. Uh, so I think that knowing what I know now, I should have started building that up, uh, long before I did. I really started thinking about it only a few weeks, maybe two months before the book came out. Like, oh yeah, I need to start investing in this sort of thing. Um, so I have a much better operation going on now. Um, and, and hopefully that will help me with these next book launches. It's really nice to hear that your book, that 168 hours, you know, like I've, I've had, I've experienced that, you know, the book's not flying off shelves, but it's, uh, it's st- it's still it's still relevant, you know, and its relevancy sometimes doesn't really pick up until um, months later or a year later. And the momentum, as long as you just sort of at, keep at it, <clears throat> I think a lot of times the publisher gives up on you while the author is like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> I still ha- I still have things to say, and people are still interested." So I'm I'm happy that that is what happened in your case. Yes, I, I was I was lucky with that. I've um, I've heard other stories. <laughs> and yeah. so it's, it's good to know that, you know, fortunately that mistake was not uh, fatal to, to my book writing career. But, um, now that I know how important those things are, I'm, I'm being better about it. Yes. Well, let's flip it and talk success, a financial success, a so money moment that you're really proud of what happened. Take us there. So this is kind of an interesting one to me, but I, when I was in intern in like, what was it? 19, no, 2001, I think. And I was in Washington, DC and I went and visited the torpedo factory, which is, um, this art installation and studio space in, in old town, Alexandria. And I saw this gorgeous painting of a strawberry in an artist's studio. And I loved it. Like, I wanted that painting. Um, but, of course, it was um, 
original art is not really within an intern's budget. <laughs> so uh, I, I walked away from that one. Obviously, I, I did not get it. Um, but a couple years later, I had uh, moved to New York. I had started my freelance writing career, and it was actually going quite well. I was surprised that um, being entrepreneurial allows uh, more money to come in than, than you can often make in, in conventional jobs. Uh, and I got the idea, let me find that painting. And I did. And I bought it. And it's on my wall now. And I bought two other works later by the same artist. And I am so happy to have those in my house. What's the artist? Who's the artist? Her, her name is Tanya Davis. Um, and uh, she's done a lot of different types of things, but it's sort of almost photographic realism, um, but uh, too perfect in a way. Like she does things that are idealized. Uh, they look like photographs, only they're idealized in a way that a photograph would never be. Uh, so I've really enjoyed um, those paintings. I love that. And it's something you can look at and constantly remind yourself of, you know, your hard work and your hard efforts and, you know, the pursuit of wanting something. That's that's really fun. Fantastic. It was great. And I, I was lucky that I was able to, to get that that painting. I mean, that it wasn't, you know, locked away in someone else's house. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I know I just started to collect a few pieces of art and it really does. They say don't buy anything unless you absolutely love it. Don't look at it as like an investment when it's art. Um, but, uh, I think it might be worth something down the road. I don't know, not betting on it, but not betting on it, but, but it gives you pleasure now. And that's worth a lot as well. For sure. Well, Laura, I'd love to learn now about habits, you know, as someone who, uh, focuses on time management skills and has really done so much research examining how people, um, perhaps take on habits to execute their, you know, their best lives, their most efficient lives to maximize happiness in your life. How do you, what are some habits or one big habit that helps you maximize your finances? So I've read a lot about how women tend to undersell themselves. And as a free agent sort, I am constantly negotiating things and I have you know, some things that other people negotiate for me, but some things I need to negotiate myself and I probably as, am as likely to undersell myself as anyone else. And so what I do is I come up with a number and then I always add to it. Uh, I, yeah. I think it's rare that I have over uh, thought what that number should be, that I've, I've made it higher than what it should be. And if so, then the person's just going to say no. I mean, that's fine. Uh, you know, we don't have to take every opportunity available to us. So uh, in order to guard against underselling myself, I try to add a little bit to whatever first number I come up with. That is super smart. And I, I preach that too. It's like, you know, it's a negotiation. Life's a negotiation. So you know what you want, but you got to leave room for that for that back and forth. So go a little bit higher. Go a little bit higher. I mean, they can, they can always say no, in which case, you know, you didn't have it anyway. Um, <laughs> and, or they could say yes, which is great. Then you got more money. Or they can say, let's, let's talk about it. And then you could have room to go back and forth between uh, what your original number was and the new number. Has it ever worked in your favor in terms of getting above and beyond what you were seeking? Uh, well, you know, sometimes I name a number and the person just says yes. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I could have <laughs> named an even higher number. Right, I right. I, mean, I try to put a number that I'd be happy with, right, so so that I don't uh, ask myself that question. But, uh, you know, it, it has definitely helped me um, up my income uh, several times. 
And at first it was probably a little unnerving. I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, going back to my own um, pursuits of making, trying to make more. I mean, at first you feel a little uh, uncomfortable perhaps asking for more, but then it's just like any other muscle, right? You have to flex it and then eventually it becomes second nature. It's very true. And there's ways to make it less awkward too. like have a phone call with someone, get them excited and then say, let me send you a proposal because then it's written and you don't have to say the numbers and go back and forth right there live. Uh, So that's always an idea, too. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, we are almost wrapped here, Laura. I would love to now engage with you in some rapid fire fill in the blanks. (laughs) This is my so money uh, fill in the blank section where I start a sentence, you finish it. First thing that comes to your mind, don't overthink it, all right? All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, big, big money, $100 million, the first thing that I would do is? (laughs) I don't think I'd change that much about what I'm personally doing, but I I might encourage my husband to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he would? Uh, He might. (laughs) Yes. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better or both is? (laughs) Babysitting. Yes. Yes. What's the going rate these days? Uh, it can be, you know, 15 to 20 bucks for a, for a grown up sitter. Yeah. Plus dinner. Plus, you know, when I was babysitting in New York, it was 13 plus dinner, plus my cab ride, which was the okay. best job. I know. That's good. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, maybe too much, but I love it and I can't get rid of it. Books. Yes. What's, what, I have a pretty bad Amazon habit. That's <laughs> dangerous, right? Because they've already got your credit card number. It's they've just, got it. And all I have to do is, you know, buy now with one click and it shows up in two days. <laughs> I know. And pretty soon there'll be drones coming through our windows, giving us whatever we want. It'll be even more difficult to say no. Exactly. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is... Uh, I certainly think that um, being entrepreneurial is um, definitely the way to increase your income fast. Uh, I've sort of seen from from studying this issue with people, you know, you have a regular job and, and that's great for stability, um, but you're only going to earn a certain percentage more every year without, you know, unless you switch jobs between companies relatively frequently. Whereas, um, if you work for yourself, you can make that number change quite a bit if you decide to really throw yourself into it. Right. And I think, uh, our parents' generation that like entrepreneurship was such a, it was, it was not a foreign concept, obviously, but it was not something that was safe. So being parents that just want to kind of protect their kids, we were taught the safer track, which was to, you know, go to school, get a job, stay in that job for as long as you can. It was security, but, you know, the world's changing and I'm with you on on entrepreneurship. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because... Uh, so I give to uh, this organization called the Young New Yorkers Chorus, which I'm on the board for. Um, and it's uh, I sang with them for years, uh, and they commission a lot of new music from young composers. So I really like the idea of uh, giving opportunities to young composers to see their work premiered. Uh, and we've gotten a lot of fascinating pieces coming out of that. So, so that's an organization I support. Any big breakout hits? Uh, only if you were in the world of <laughs> the very niche world of choral music would uh, anyone have heard of it. That's cool. Uh, but, 
<laughs> we, we've had some great stuff. I, I enjoy listening to it. Well, and finally, I'm Laura Vanderkam, and I'm so money because? Because I, um, oh boy, <laughs> I had an answer, and then now I'm like, hmm, what have I not said in, in this interview? We've been so thorough, I think, but I'm so money because I'm happy with how I'm earning and spending my money these days, and that's a great place to be. It is. Absolutely is. Thank you so much, Laura. Everyone, let's congratulate Laura. Her book is out today. It's called I Know How She Does It, How Successful Women Make the Most of Their Time. And thank you for spending your time with us and uh, helping us become more successful in the process. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Laura Vanderkam, for being on my show today. You can check out her website, lauravandercam.com. Again, her new book is called I Know How She Does It. And if you'd like to meet us, Laura and I, and you're in New York City this week, we'd love to have you at Henry Bendel's on Fifth Avenue. It's this Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Hop over to farnoosh.tv for all the details on where you can buy your ticket. And of course, you've got the transcript from this interview over at somoneypodcast.com. And I want to hear from you. Submit your question about money, work, life, or guests at somoneypodcast.com. And there's a really good chance that I'm going to answer it this weekend. So uh, go ahead and submit a question if you've got one. And as a reminder, if you'd like the chance to win a free 15-minute money session with me, just hop over to iTunes and leave a review for this show. Actually, the last week, you guys have been really, really amazing. I've got so many reviews. It's kind of hard to pick which one is going to receive this 15-minute money session, but... um you know, it's just, I kind of throw darts some weeks and uh, hopefully um, if you want to connect with me and you do this, we will connect. I've been doing this now for several months and it's been a great privilege to connect with some of you one-on-one and hear about what's going on in your lives. I just, I love it. So please, if this interests you, leave a review and hopefully we will uh, connect on Skype. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope the rest of your day and week is so money.